37. It's going to be on the screen as well. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. There, some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged him to place his hands on the man. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears, and then he spit and touched the man's tongue. And he looked up to heaven, and with a deep sigh, he said, Ephatha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. But the more he did so, the more he kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He does everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So we're, it's kind of an anniversary today. We're on message 30 of our move through the Gospel of Mark. We're looking at the life of Jesus as it's laid out in the Gospel of Mark. Um, understanding what does it mean to follow Jesus by not just hitting texts that are familiar, but all of the Gospel of Mark. And our theme is insurrection. We're looking at how, um, through his life and message, Jesus is coming to establish the kingdom of God, which is a kingdom that's going to overthrow the false kingdoms of the world. And it's going to overthrow the forces of sin and death in every sphere of life where Jesus encounters it. So let's Go back into the text, Mark 7, let's look at verse 31. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down the Sea of Galilee, and into the region of the Decapolis. Okay, so if we put up the map that we had last week, um, Jesus was just in Tyre, so now he's going shoreline up towards Sidon. Then he's going to loop back around, he's going to go down by the Sea of Galilee, and then he's going to enter on this uh, lower right side, the region of the Decapolis. And like we talked about last week, the majority, where Jesus is going, Jesus is doing a tour through predominantly Gentile or unbelieving territory. So while the green section doesn't mean it was controlled by the Jews, it wasn't, it was controlled by the Romans, the green section means there was a tremendous uh, prevalence of Jewish thought and Jewish influence, lots of synagogues. But in these Gentile regions, in the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon and the Decapolis, these were almost thoroughly unbelieving areas, certainly antagonistic to the Jewish message. And so that's important to understand here because Jesus is actually training his apostles, these 12 who were sent ones, he's training them and saying, a lot of your mission isn't going to be going to people who at least have some basic worldview things in place like when you talk to a Jewish person. They also believe in one God. They understand the authority of the Torah. I'm now bringing you into contact with people in a sustained way that are, from your point of view, uh, just religious lost causes. These are uh, total pagans, total Gentiles, complete unbelievers. Because Jesus is saying, my message and my influence in this gospel is going to start with Israel, but eventually it's going to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. And that means it's going to penetrate places where there is, uh, 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 places of complete Uh, unbelief. So Jesus is sending his disciples, this is fill in the blank, number one junior hires, Jesus is sending his disciples into unbelieving territory. And one of the lessons there is that following Jesus always involves a missional movement. We're always moving into territories, um, whether it's in our friendships, at school, on our sports team, 
in our marriage, we're always moving into places seeking to bring the love of Jesus and the grace of Jesus and the truth of Jesus to bear in spheres where people might have never even heard of Jesus before. And that means that following Jesus means taking risks. This is scary for, the, for these 12 di- disciples. Um, it's a real risk. For them, it would have been seen as way outside of their comfort zone. But following Jesus means taking risks because you're putting yourself in a position to encounter unbelief and some of the psychological, emotional, spiritual, physical suffering that comes as a result of that, and then you're now put in a situation where you have to learn to love and bring Jesus' truth and love to bear on these situations. And that can be a scary thing. So it's very easy for the church to just simply keep retreating, praying, throw prayer bombs into the Decapolis, but I'm going to stay here in my tribe. And Jesus is saying there's a place to gather together, to worship, to encourage one another. That's very important. But we're gathered in order to be sent into the different spheres of life and to bring Jesus' love and healing to everyone, but especially those who've never heard or who don't believe or who are suffering under the weight of a worldview that doesn't have God at the center. Verse 32. In this context... There, some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged him to place his hands on the man. Now, remember the context. This is important. Don't move over this too quick. These are not good people from a religious point of view as far as the disciples are concerned. This is Gentile territory. These are people who are antagonistic. Their lifestyle, their whole society is kind of an altar to pagan gods and idolatry. So I say that to say... I think whenever you read a Gentile coming to Jesus or a group of them saying, would you heal, would you uh, help us, there have got to be more than a handful of those disciples that on the inside are gritting, you know, they're gritting their teeth and they're cringing because they're like, you don't, you're not even worthy to address my rabbi. Like, you're a Gentile, you're a pagan. You shouldn't even be approaching Jesus, yet alone asking him to do you a favor On what basis does Jesus owe you anything? You don't even believe in his God. Like, you're you're so far apart from him on a theological point of view. And I think about that often, and I think that's important for us to remember in the context of these stories. Because we tend to only want to help people who deserve it by a certain... I mean, we all have kind of self-determined factors that say, yeah, these are the kinds of... If someone's like this, and they show real contrition, and there's a willingness, and all the... So then these people are worthy of help and grace. I know I say that in my own heart. I reflected on that a lot this week in the context of this passage. But what's interesting here is Jesus doesn't heal or bless or engage people or help people based on that criteria. Do they deserve it? Have they met a certain bar upon which now they're worthy to approach to receive? That's not how Jesus engages with people. And thank God, because if that's the way he would engage with people, none of us would receive any mercy or blessing because none of us are deserving of what he has to offer us. And so every story in the gospel, but especially ones that feature really desperate, broken, a Gentile, unbelieving, unworthy people, should be a bit of a mirror through which we as non-Jewish people should understand and have a better understanding of the grace of Jesus in our lives. These are like, this is like a mirror. This is saying, this is you spiritually before Jesus. Jesus wants us to notice something really, really 
powerful happening in this passage. It says, the people bring forward a man who could hardly talk. And if you look at a, a, a number of different translations, they will use different words here. Some will use mute. That's not a good translation because there actually is a word in the Greek that just means mute. This is not that word. This is a word that only occurs once in the entire New Testament, and it's mogilalos. And in the Greek, uh, it's, not the, it's hard to uh, translate it, but it essentially means someone who's uh, slow of speech, who has a, we would say, speech impediment. Their tongue is tightened. Um, it, it has this word picture of a tongue that's trapped and can't move the way it was intended to move. He has trouble speaking. He could hardly talk. He's deaf. And so for us, we understand today if you're born deaf, there's all kind of developmental markers early on in life that you can't uh, achieve, especially uh, learning to pronounce properly because you can't hear your own voice and you're, you get kind of tongue-tied. And we've come a long way in terms of technology and, and teaching people with, you know, we have speech therapists, but these were not available. So this is someone who's deaf, and because of that, he can't form words properly. But the word that Mark uses is mogilalos. He could have used mute. He doesn't. He uses that word. Someone who could hardly talk. And that is significant. It's totally lost on us because we're not reading in Greek. But if we were reading in Greek, we'd be like, that's a super unusual word. And then we'd look at the rest of our Greek Bible and say, it's nowhere in our, sorry, Greek New Testament. And then we'd look in the Bible and we'd say, is it anywhere in the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament? And we'd say, yep, one place. So it's only used twice in the whole Bible. Once here and once in Isaiah 35, verses 1 to 6. One time. I'll tell you where it shows up here. This is Isaiah 35, 1 to 6. This is a prophecy of God's restoring power that's going to come to Jerusalem and to Israel. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and will blossom. Like, a, like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue Mogilalos will shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. I say, Isaiah says there's a day coming where God is going to begin to put things right. And in places that are dry and lifeless in the wilderness, there's going to be a blossoming and abundance of God's restorative, redemptive power. And one of the signs is that those who suffer from Mogilalos find it difficult to speak are going to be delivered. And who's going to deliver them according to the passage? It's not a prophet. It's not just a great king. Your God will come to rescue you. Your God will come to save you. Mark wants to set up the story to say, again, this is not just a great teacher or a wise prophet sent from God. This is God come to rescue us in fulfillment of Isaiah 35. Verse 33 
after Jesus took him aside, away from the crowd, pause there for a second, very easy to move over this. Why does Jesus take him aside away from the crowds? Think about this guy. He's been brought by his friends. His friends are like, will you lay hands on this person and heal him? And Jesus takes this man aside, away from everyone. We don't know into a home, but a safe uh, place of privacy. Some commentators say Jesus doesn't want to be seen as a miracle worker. He doesn't want to be doing all these things out in the open, especially in Gentile territory, because he wants people to come to him based on his message and not necessarily um, a religious circus show. That could be. But I think it's important to see that Jesus takes this man aside in order to connect with him very personally, away from the crowds. Crowds aren't hindering Jesus from doing whatever he's going to do. But he wants to connect to this man on a very personal level. That what we're seeing here is a picture of intimacy and respect. Remember, this is someone who has been a spectacle their entire life. If you know, if you've seen someone who's deaf or have major speech impediments, it, you can reverse engineer a lot of from their life moving backwards, and you can um, understand how growing up as a kid in different social circles, they would have been made fun of. Uh, they would have been a spectacle. There would have been so much of normal life that they would have been alienated from, not simply just because they couldn't engage properly, but because the way they were trying to engage sounded silly or dumb. I mean, a lot of people thought that uh, um, deaf people were deaf and dumb. That's what we used to call it as a society, because they couldn't, even though they weren't, but they couldn't form the words properly because they hadn't had the ability to uh, cognitively make those connections. So this is someone who has been cut off from so much of life and probably has had a, a heap of abuse put on him because of this issue. And Jesus doesn't want him to be a spectacle anymore. Jesus is showing tremendous care and tremendous compassion for this man's dignity. Maybe not a lot of people have given this guy much dignity throughout his life. Jesus, right now, even in this small act, is beginning to restore his dignity. I see you as an image bearer of the living God, and I'm taking you aside. And then look what Jesus does. Jesus puts his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spits and touches the man's tongue. He looks up to heaven and with a deep sigh says to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. And at this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak. Here's what's amazing about this process that Jesus does. Notice that Jesus condescends in order to transform this man's life. He literally um, lowers himself on a level of communication in such a way that the man, he, he's, he's now on the, the, the man can receive from Jesus. What do I mean by that? Jesus brings him alone. So he brings him into a place where there's all this vibration, noise, stimulation. That's brought down. There's clarity. He touches his ears. He touches his tongue. And then he looks up to heaven and he says, Ephatha. Now, when I read this, I didn't pick up on this until way late into the week. I always presumed in a quick reading, the miracle happens when he touches his ears, and the miracle happens when he touches his tongue. But that is not what the text 
infers. The text infers that his, his ears were opened and his tongue is loosened once Jesus looks up to heaven and says, Ephatha, be opened. Why does Jesus touch the man's ears? And why does he touch his tongue? Any ideas? We know it's not to execute the miracle. Last week, Jesus dispelled the demon from a woman's daughter that wasn't even proximal to Jesus. He just said, oh, when you go home, the demon's going to have left the girl. We've already seen Jesus do miracles where he doesn't even have to be present to produce healing and restoration in someone's life. So this isn't like, okay, it's like a magic spell and I need to do these rituals and if I do that in the right order, then I unlock the treasures of heaven. Touch the ears, spit, magic spit. He's not doing that. Jesus is communicating to this man what is happening. Don't, Don't miss this in the passage. This man does not know why he's here. His friends have brought him. He doesn't know why he's here. He may be scared, uh, probably overwhelmed. Jesus isolates him, and he touches his ears. Something's going to happen here. And he touches his tongue. Something's going to happen here. And Jesus looks up to heaven. And he's, co- he's teaching. He's communicating to the man. Something's going to happen here. Something's going to happen here. And it's from up there. It's from God. And then Jesus says, be opened and he's healed completely and fully. Now, what I love about that picture, first of all, it's just, it's a very, very intimate, powerful moment. If you, if you read over the scripture this week, read over it and play it over like a movie in your mind's eye. Put yourself in the position of a man who is, can't hear, can't form words, the chaos of what that would be like, and then imagine Jesus doing this to you. The idea that God would condescend to our level that would even use sign language and touch our bodies in such a way to lead us into restoration is something that is uniquely glorious amongst Christianity. On Friday afternoons, I've been leading a study looking at the difference between Christianity and Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism. And, you know, one of the things that we're learning really quickly is that not all religions teach the same thing. Not all religions' conceptions of God are the same, or even if there is a God. But no one comes close to this idea that God is willing to condescend to our level, to stoop to our level in order to bring healing and restoration. I mean, that's what Christmas is all about. The second person of the Trinity condescends as a human being to come and bring restoration and healing. And we see that in a a microcosm here. Islam says God is so transcendent, it would be an affront to God. It would be offensive for God to draw near in that kind of way. For God to stoop to a human level, God is holy, and that means God is wholly other and, and, and removed. God is transcendent. There's no imminence from God, closeness. Buddhism says there's not really any gods. Most polytheism, um, Greek philosophy, Greek worldview, uh, Roman religion might say that there are gods. Maybe they come and interfere with life, but they never come to serve people. They never con- they may come to interfere or to do violent acts amongst humanity because they just love power plays. But the gods don't come and put themselves at our level and speak our language and then use their power to heal and to restore and to redignify. That is unique amongst Christianity. And we see that in a beautiful, beautiful way here. Only Christianity proclaims a good news message that not only is God good, but his goodness is revealed by the fact that he became one of us in order to rescue us. He lowers himself to bring us up. Verse 36, Jesus commanded them, the man and his friends, not to tell anybody. 
But the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it, which is pretty comedic. This guy hasn't been able to talk his whole life. Jesus heals him. Yeah, we've got to keep this. Just not, don't talk about this with anybody, <laughs> right? I mean, it's, it's one of those commands where you're like, I kind of get the guy disobeying Jesus. It's, it's, it's kind of valid a little bit. This guy can speak for the first time. His friends are like, what's going on? Jesus is like, no, you need to keep, no, don't, don't tell people. Don't, he keeps telling them. No matter how much he tells them, they're so excited. He's so excited. Um, but I think it's important to note that Jesus does say, I don't want you to tell a lot of people. Because we see this all throughout the Gospels. Jesus doesn't want people seeking him simply for his miracles. He wants people seeking him for his message. Jesus is never stingy with his miracles. He's always open and gracious. But he often tells people not to tell other people because he doesn't want to create an environment where people are just coming to him and kind of, yeah, the message, kingdom of God, whatever, restoration of Israel. And anyways, but like, I have this problem or this, this, and this. So Jesus is always creating this counter-tension of, of course I'm going to heal. That's part of what the establishment of the kingdom means. But that isn't why I've come. I've come to preach the good news. Mark establishes that very early. I've come to preach the gospel. The miracles are the, the, you know, the, the, the side of the main meal, as it were. But our human tendency is to make the miraculous and these big things. That's, that, that's the whole point. Verse 37, people were overwhelmed with amazement. And they said, he has done everything well. This short little story is an amazing story of restoration. It's an amazing story about grace. Uh, and it points to a larger mission and a larger story of restoration and grace that the, the apostles are supposed to learn, these 12 disciples who are going to be sent ones out into Gentile territory eventually. And that we should learn as the church. Because remember, Jesus' training, he's beginning to say, this is what following me looks like. Going into unbelieving territory and when you go, you're going to be open-handed and generous and loving, and you're going to display the love and grace of God. It will be hard for you because the people you're going to be interacting with aren't always good, upstanding, religious, moral citizens. But Jesus says, show me the example where I withheld God's kingdom blessing from someone because they didn't have all their ducks in a row. See, I think part of the mission of every church is to be a public witness in such a way that the community, like they looked at Jesus, they reflect on the presence of a church in a community and they say, they do all things well. Like there, there's just genuine graciousness and goodness there. There's, gen, there's tremendous generosity. And, it, and it's unconditional. It's not will, love, and care for you if... It's just, it overflows from a life of love. And I like that this story is a story of unconditional mercy and grace. And I like that Jesus simply touches this man's life. We don't know anything about him. And he touches his life and transforms his life without any conditions. But notice that even in touching this man's life, it costs Jesus, it costs Jesus something. The text says, Jesus sighs deep, deeply before he looks up to heaven and says, Be opened. And the word that's used there in the Greek means a groaning or a moaning. It's not like, it's more like, be opened. See, our healing costs Jesus something. 
and that's just true in all of life, to bless someone, like genuinely, to bless and love and care for someone costs you something. Time, energy, money, resources of some kind. It costs you something. And Jesus is teaching his disciples and he's teaching us, I want you, part of what it's going to look like for you to faithfully follow me as the church is to be a people who are moving into other people's lives and bringing healing and hope and restoration. But yes, at, at cost to yourself. See, that's what it means to be involved in local mission as the church. We are called to bless this community at cost to ourselves. We do it in order to, yes, help people, bless and love them, but also to increase God's fame, to increase his glory, but we're to do it without conditions. And to be honest, I'm very encouraged, as I've met with many of you over the last year and a half, at how this is happening at individual levels. People intentionally, uh, in small and big ways, loving on neighbors, people in their family, friends, coworkers, schoolmates. It's really, really encouraging. But I think one of the areas that we haven't done a good job of this is figuring out how do we have that kind of generous, gracious witness as a church within this community. Our missions committee met uh, last Monday. It was such a really encouraging meeting, and it was so exciting. And one of the things that they're recommending for 2017 budget is that we increase our budget and create a a larger um, set of funds that are used to simply bless and serve this community, good initiatives happening within this community. Not more projects for us, but to say we have our own little trellis foundation, our own little war chest. And as people say, this is really good happening over here, or this is a way that we could bless healthcare workers in Nelson, or teachers, or what have you, we have this funds. we're going to do this. And doing it individually is so important. But it's also important to do it as a church, because when people are on the receiving end of a blessing they didn't know was coming down the pipe, and it's like, this is courtesy of Nelson Covenant Church. We love you, we value what you do, we know that what you do is often overlooked or unnoticed, but we care about you, and thanks for what you do. That means a lot. That increases God's fame. That begins to work in the hearts of people who presume, looking from the outside in, this is just a club. We're just uh, shifting money around to meet our own ends. And I was really encouraged to hear everybody in the missions committee come together with this vision to say, yeah, let's, let's take some risks this year in loving this community, in blessing them. Yes, even financially, at cost to ourselves. But may we do it in the spirit of this kind of text. When the Gentiles saw how Jesus reacted and blessed those who by religious standards didn't even deserve it, they were overwhelmed with amazement. And part of that is, this is like a really good, upstanding, godly rabbi, and he's helping us? Like, we kind of know how Jews think of us. But they were amazed. And they said, he does everything well. This person is a testimony. He's a pillar of God's goodness. He reflects God's goodness and glory in a unique way. So your homework for this week and for the months ahead is to seriously start thinking and praying about what would cause this community to respond What would cause this community to be overwhelmed with amazement in terms of how we're loving and showing God's grace towards them? 
What would be the acts of generosity, love, compassion, care, seeking of the common good? Not things that, not supporting simply things that we value or that have some kind of direct or indirect return on investment for us, but that are really, God loves you, we love you, we value what you're doing, here you go. What are those things? I don't know. I have some ideas, but I want us to let that percolate in our hearts so that when we have these funds and someone says, I'd really like this and I'd like to bless these people in this way and it would cost like $150 and we're like, yeah, let's do it. And let's just create this momentum of loving our neighbors, continuing to do it as individuals and couples and families, but also now as a church. 1 Peter 2.12 says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they would see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That's the kind of witness we want to have. Even people who are like, I think Christians are the most bigoted, uh, phobic, just out to lunch, irrational people. Oh, I, I can't stand them. I'm, out of my experience, I'm so predisposed to dismiss them and hate them. But they have done a lot for this community in ways that are costly to them. And that's given me pause because it breaks the narrative that I had in my mind of the kind of people that Christians are or the kinds of things that churches support or the conditional love of evangelicals. So Mark wants us to see how Jesus is fulfilling this kingdom of God vision of restoration, how God is coming to make things right, how we as the church are to continue to walk in that vision It's not just something Jesus did. We're followers of Jesus. But Mark, in drawing our attention to this restorative, rescuing, hopeful vision contained in Isaiah 35, let's go back there to close, he highlights something really critical. He says, Say to the fearful hearts, be strong, don't fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance and with divine retribution, and he will save you. How is this great, flourishing, new creation hope that Isaiah says is coming down the pipe, how is that going to be established He says God's going to come with vengeance and divine retribution. Now let's look at this encounter. Where's where's the vengeance? Where's the divine retribution? Think about any of Jesus' encounters with people who are desperate and hurting and lonely and alienated and broken and blind and people who can hardly talk and the lame. Where's the divine retribution? God's coming. Where's the divine retribution? See, this is the great gospel turn that was alluded to in the Old Testament, but it becomes very clear once you get into the gospels. The answer is that God's going to restore things not by coming to bring divine retribution, but to bear it himself. That's how Jesus is going to set things right, not by bringing God's wrath to bear on sinners, but by standing in their place, by exchanging places and saying, I will take that wrath upon myself. The wrath they should have gotten, I will absorb. The glory and the salvation and the son and daughtership and the adoption that that I earned through my perfect sinless life, I will give to them. That is the great gospel turn of the entire narrative of Scripture. 
God doesn't come to bring divine retribution. He comes to bear it. And that's why Jesus can only, that's the only reason why Jesus can heal the sick and raise the dead. And that's the only reason why Jesus, Jesus can completely forgive us and restore us and one day glorify us in resurrected bodies and in new heavens and new earth. Because he's paid the penalty for what you and I deserve. So God saves us by coming and bearing in himself the penalty for our sins. And Christians call that atonement. God atones for sins, not by pouring out justice on, tho- on the, those who deserve wrath, but by taking it upon himself. When they saw Jesus at work, the crowd said, the crowds were overwhelmed with amazement, and they said, he does everything well. May, th- may their response to Jesus' grace be our response this morning. Let's pray. God, we want to be a people who don't just gather here on Sunday to puff ourselves up, to simply intake spiritual calories and then not exercise them. We want to be a people who understand that we are a sent people. We gather to scatter, to scatter and to go into the places of darkness and hurt and pain and bring your restoration and healing, God. For some of us, that is a very overwhelming vision. We don't know where to start, so would you show us, even in small places? And would you lead us over the coming weeks and months into a vision for how we can do that as a church? Not to make the name of our church great, but as, as a corporate ambassador of you, God, that people would see through our name, through our efforts, and say, their, their God is a gracious God. Their God is a good God. Their God is a loving God. So would you use us individually and corporately, God, to this end? And we ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.